Hey friends, welcome to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. The theme of this season is that I'm talking to some of my favorite authors and thinkers, and I am so excited to have someone on today, um, Michael Easter. I read his book. It actually kind of magically showed up in my mailbox. Uh, I think the publisher sent it, but I didn't know it was coming, and I opened it up, and I just stared at it because I'm like, how did this come at such a perfect time? So I devoured the book uh, at least one full time. I think I've read several parts more than once, and I am thrilled to have Michael on with me today. Uh, he is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in Scientific America, Esquire, Men's Journal, and so many others. He's a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and a contributing editor to Men's Health Magazine. So welcome, Michael. Thrilled to thank, have you. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. I'm glad the book magically appeared at your doorstep, and now we're here. Yes. And now we're here. Yeah. And I've told many people about it because, I mean, it's not a homesteading book. And have you ever been on a homesteading podcast before? Like, it's kind of a different niche. But this, Yeah, this is my first at bat on a homesteading okay. podcast. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yes, I have I have high hopes. I feel good, good about this. Good, <laughs> so good, good, good. Me too. <laughs> um, but I just think it was fascinating because so much of what you had in that book, even though it wasn't about homesteading, man, the crossover was incredible just because the homesteading persona that the type of people that it attracts really lean into the hard and maybe not in the physical way that you talk about in your book a lot, but in a lot of the other ways. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. Um, a lot of crossover. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, to sort of back up too, it's like a lot of what humans find rewarding is hard. Yeah. Right. It's so like things that take, um, effort that throw curveballs our way. Um, and especially if they get us outdoors doing things that sort of, uh, humans evolved to do like around food and things like that yep. and friends yep. and family. Um, when we overcome those challenges, those hardships, we find that really, really rewarding. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, this is a long way of saying I'm not surprised that um, it resonated with you given your background and what you do now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so I, I have so, so many questions, but I think you, you kind of give a great segue into the first one. Um, in your opinion, with all the research you've done, what the heck is going on in our modern culture right now? Because we're seeing, I mean, there's, I mean, that's a huge question. You don't have to answer it entirely, of course, but like, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of people just miserable with life, even though we comparatively historically live pretty cushy lives for the most part. So what the, what, what the heck is going on? Yeah. I mean, we do live very, very cushy lives now. Of course, there's some people that, you know, still face a lot of hardship. But I would say that now, even if you're in a uh, pretty dire circumstances now, you're far better off than if you would have been in dire circumstances, say, 100 years ago. So one thing, I think the main thing that's happened is that over time, especially since the Industrial Revolution, our world started getting more and more comfortable. So this is kind of a good problem to have, right? It's like now we have uh, climate control all the time. We have uh, access to screens and entertainment all the time. Um, we don't necessarily have to work for our food unless you're maybe listening to this podcast and then you choose to, yep. right? We don't have to move physically. I mean, you could literally take maybe 500 steps a day and be fine. We're no longer challenged in the way that we used to. And we know from years of research, not just scientific research, but also, I mean, you go back thousands of years of, of mythology and even religious texts, humans seem to get, um, seem to find value in being challenged and overcoming those challenges. And that could be, um, 
sort of the things we were talking about earlier, but even, even physical challenges, like having to move your body every day. Um, it not only keeps your physical health in check, but it's, it keeps your mental health in check too. So exercise is associated with, um, increases in happiness, decreases in depression. Also, you think about our food environment. It's like, we no longer have to work for our food and the food that we do have, um, is often very, ultra processed is sort of the technical terms, another word for junk food. So it's really hyper palatable. Like it's easy to eat. You can eat a ton of it. Um, you can kind of do it mindlessly and there's so much of it everywhere. So that's tied to our physical, uh, problems too. And I mean, you keep adding these sort of comfortable, easy things one after the other, after the other, after the other, and you can start to see why it might raise some problems that compile on each other. Absolutely. Yeah. That kind of the modern malaise just is just affecting us all, I think in ways, even when people don't, don't realize it. Yeah. Um, so here's a good example. 1990, there come these news reports about kidnapping that come out. Um, couple, there was a couple high profile kidnappings and overall the kidnapping rate was decreasing precipitously. But because these reports got a ton of news, what did parents do? They're like, I mean, it's a totally natural reaction, but they're like, yeah. oh my God, you're going to get kidnapped to their kids. So they stopped letting their kids go outside as much. Um, you know, no longer are parents going, yeah, just be home when the street lights come on or whatever, you know, which was the old thing. Yes. Um, so they start, this is when helicopter parenting really starts, which is like really watching your kids making, you know, just overparenting, more or less. Um, well, when you look at those generations born after helicopter parenting starts, they have the highest rates of uh, mental health problems compared to any other generation. And the researchers think this is because, back to that idea of challenge and learning from it, you know, the kids before helicopter parenting, which I was born before 1990, it's like my mother was like, you know, just come back when, when it's dark out. And so what was I doing? I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have someone checking in on me. I was going outside. I was, you know, doing stuff I probably shouldn't have. I was, you know, kind of getting like rough and tumble. I was going out in nature. I was falling. I was getting scraped. I was getting sort of beat up. You know, you'd have altercations with other kids. You might get punched in the face every now and then. Um, but I would learn from those things every single time, right? It's when one of those challenges would come my way. I could be like, okay, I've learned something from this and I can navigate it. So when you take that away, all of a sudden now you have students who, um, kids who, you know, a lot of them are now in college or beyond college. So then when a challenge does come their way, it's like, if you've never faced a challenge and all of a sudden you get challenged at 19 in a classroom, because a professor goes, well, what about, did you ever think about this? It's like, that becomes very, very sort of like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And in other research, you find that, it's so people who have faced a ton of challenges in their life, just like one after the other, like traumas and stuff, they don't have good mental health. Sure. But at the same time, people who have faced zero challenges in their life have equally poor rates of mental health. There's a sweet spot where you have to have enough challenge that you learn from it, but not so much that it sort of breaks you. And so I think you're seeing younger generations have so much challenge removed from their life that it's sort of affecting them down the road. This episode is sponsored by Redmond Agriculture. If you recall from previous episodes, they're the company that produces my absolute favorite salt for baking and cooking. And they just launched something new that I have been dying to tell you about. 
So for years, you've heard me talk about soil testing. And it's so crucial for us as home gardeners who are trying to produce food to know what's going on at the soil level. Otherwise, it's really easy to get frustrated and not understand why your yields might be where you need them to be, why some plants are struggling, and so on. Now, the problem with soil tests is that they've been pretty cumbersome to do. You have to find a university that does it locally or mail them off to random places online. It just hasn't been a great option until now. So Redmond's just launched a soil test kit that is designed for people like you and me, homesteaders and home gardeners. And what I'm holding here is a bunch of my printout results, and I have been totally nerding out over this. So it's super easy to do. Uh, you get the kit, you send it in in the mail, and within five or six days, you'll have results emailed to you. I discovered things in my test reports that I had no idea. Uh, I'm going to go into all the nitty gritty on a future podcast episode, but um, just for now, I'll tell you a few of the most surprising findings. I discovered my compost pile was low in nitrogen. I discovered my greenhouse was too high in nitrogen, and I discovered why the potting soil that had gave me so much trouble this spring was killing all my plants. So again, I'll go into the details in an up, uh, upcoming episode. But for now, I want you to have access to the soil kit because gardening season is rapidly coming to a close. And if you've had a rough year, like many folks are reporting that they've had, um, now is the time to test your soil and figure out what's up. So if you go over to the prairiehomestead.com slash soil test, you can use the code homestead to save 15% on soil kits or anything else that Redmond's has to offer. So I can't wait for you to try this. Um, knowledge is power. And as gardeners, we can use all of the data that we can get. So now back to our episode. So yeah, I had Lenore Skenazi who wrote the book Free Range Kids. And she's a proponent of letting kids basically play unsupervised, which is very and against what our modern parenting culture um, advises. But just the, the information that she had in regards to like the damage that is caused to children when they're not allowed to engage in risky play to run around outside unsupervised, to be in nature unsupervised. It's, it's pretty chilling, like what we're doing to our kids just with this, this fear and this um, desire to never allow our kids to feel discomfort, um, which we think is helping them, but it's actually having adverse effects. Yeah, and then I think you add, so you have, um, you have that, and then you add something like social media on top of that um, at a time where kids, so when teen, uh, when, Children turn into teens, their brains start to change in such a way that uh, a lot of things happen, but they begin to really value um, social relationships, like social relationships become very, very important to teens. And so then you put uh, Instagram on that and you have someone who maybe has a hard time taking challenges, um, overvalues what other people think of them. And what other people do and say and how they react to them. And then you add Instagram and you can see why like mental health rates for teenagers, especially teen girls in particular, um, are just not good right now. Like the worst they've ever been, um, like self-harm among teens has never been higher, especially for girls. Suicides has never been higher. I mean, it's really, it's really, it's a really tough spot we're in. Um, and I think that part of it will be having to think. How can I, you know, because parents, <laughs> parents wanting to helicopter their children is a very natural thing. Absolutely. Right? It's yeah. like your survival instinct. You want your, you want yeah. your offspring to survive. That's what every single animal ever wants to do. Um, 
but I think we're at a point now where you can take that so far overboard that it backfires. And so I think a lot of the question that questions that parents will have to face is like, how can I insert challenge into my um, child's life in a way that is safe yet will teach them the things that I need to teach them so they don't end up in a spot where they're, you know, depressed and anxious and on and on and on once they reach a certain age. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, as a parent, it's a, it's a hard balance. Even though I, I've read all the books, I know the things and I'm pretty good at, it. I, I would say I'm, how do I, sounds annoying, but like better than the average parent, as far as like, Hey, go outside and play and skin your knee and you'll live. Um, but even like I have my six-year-old was, she has a pocket knife and she's responsible with it, but she was whittling a stick the other day for a friend to make it sharper for a friend, which if you're, if you're a city parent, that sounds horrifying, but the country parents, it's normal. But anyway, like she was doing her thing and she was doing a great job, but as I walked by her with this knife, I, my instinct was to go, hey, stop, be careful, be careful, be careful. And I was like, no, Jill, like, stop. Just like, she's making good choices. She's being responsible. Let her do the risky thing because it's teaching her those, those skills. And so, but it's hard. I still have to, you still have to fight that, that inner urge to, to be the mother bear all the time. Yeah. And it's like, you know, part of the deal is that <laughs> how do you learn not to stab yourself in the hand? You stab yourself in the hand. You stab yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> exactly. so, you know, a lot of it, I think for parents is going, okay, th- th- things are inevitably going to happen, but I just need to make sure that those things that could happen are not catastrophic. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Yep. Like it's okay if you touch the wood stove once, but I'm not going to let you put your head in the wood stove. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Wisdom. Yeah. Balance. Um, absolutely. So why, why do we as a culture or even as an individual, we have such an aversion to being uncomfortable. Like sometimes even just in my life, the silly things I do, growing food, milking a cow. I mean, when I tell some people what I do, you would think that I told them I was cutting off a limb. Like they just can't imagine how horrifying it would be to have to get up and milk a cow in the morning. Why are we, why are we like that? Yeah. So if you think about, um, how humans evolved over, you know, two and a half million years, basically, um, we evolved in environments that were very uncomfortable, unsafe, risky, So given that, if you could do the next most comfortable thing every single time, that would provide you with a survival advantage. So for example, there wasn't a lot of food back then. So you do not want to move around excessively, right? Because that would just burn this extra energy that you're having a hard time getting already. And if you're you're the type of person who goes for a run for the sake of it, you're literally going to (laughs) die, right? Yeah. Um, you think about hunger. It's like hunger is this discomfort that our body, um, used as a sort of cue to tell us, Hey, you need to eat. Um, but at the same time, because food was so scarce, when we got the opportunity to eat, um, back then it was very comforting. And the more we could eat and really like try and pack on fat, the better. Cause then when you had an inevitable food scarcity, you could draw on that fat. Um, we want to avoid temperature swings because that's dangerous. You don't want to be too cold. You don't want to be too hot right? You want to have, you want to have shelter all the time. I mean, even things like boredom, boredom was this evolutionary discomfort that basically told us whatever you're doing with your time right now, the return on your time invested has worn thin. Like you need to go do something else. And it would tell us to go do something else. that was often more productive. Um, so that's kind of a long way of saying we have all these different forms of discomfort that used to serve us in the past. And that's because our environments were uncomfortable. Well, then after the industrial revolution in particular, our environment started to change to be much more comfortable, 
right? Because we want comfort. So like, why wouldn't we make things as comfortable as possible? But now the problem is that we are creatures who are wired to seek comfort, except we are now in a comfortable environment. So we don't ever have these things that, you know, we don't have to go out and look for food because like, of course, early humans didn't exercise, but at the same time, their daily job was to walk miles and miles and miles searching for food. Right now we can just order it from Uber Eats, like literally maybe not even get off the couch. And also the food is like buffalo wings and a burger and whatever. I mean, like early humans are eating like potatoes and maybe if they were lucky, they hunted some animal, right? It's like very plain food. Um, So there's just all these different ways that we um, now no longer have to be uncomfortable. And yet these discomforts actually keep us healthy and happy and we get rewards from them. So uh, anthropologists, if you want to get nerdy about it, they call this an evolutionary mismatch. It's basically when you take a creature that is adapted to one environment and you put it in another environment and the traits that they uh, evolved to have in that old environment now backfire in the new one. Yeah. And basically the pendulum swung too far. Yes. That's a revolution. Before that, we were too much discomfort at the point, you know, people died more, we had more disease and more whatever, but now we've gone too hard over on the other yeah exactly so i mean look in the grand scheme of time and space it's a good problem to have to not have to Mm -hmm. exercise (laughs) to like just not be exercising enough it's a good problem to have to have so much food that you're not starving it's a good problem to have that like you have uh mental health problems because you never go outside you never have to be challenged but it's a problem nonetheless and one that the upside is that if we solve it we're in a pretty good spot right? Because we're not dying from tiger attacks, from infections, from not from starving to death anymore, but we need to balance it now. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, a lot of folks in the homesteading space will say, oh, I wish I was born a hundred years ago. And I'm like, eh, <laughs> like I'm, I'm good. Like there's, I mean, there's pieces I think would have been awesome, but I'm kind of with you. I think we are in a good spot. I like the fact that I can grow my own food, but if my garden gets hailed out in a thunderstorm, I can still eat. I don't die. Like that's nice. So I yeah. feel like there's definite benefits. We just have to keep it, keep it in balance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't think that anyone from a hundred years ago, if you were to take them here and be like, yo, check this out. <laughs> I don't yeah. think they would be yeah. like, now nah, I'm going back to the salt mines. You know, like no exactly. one's saying that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one's saying that. No, no. So it's easy to romanticize, but we didn't live it. Either. Yeah. But, but, but at the same time, like, you know, what you're doing and what your listeners are doing, I think that, um, it's a really good approach because you can get a lot of the benefits that we used to get from this sort of thing at the same time, having something of a safety net, right? Like yeah, you said, it's definitely if something goes wrong and you run out of food. It's like, well, I guess we're going to have to take the hour long or however long it is to Cheyenne drive and yep. go to the, go to the grocery store. Yep. Yep. Which is doable. And yes, absolutely. So I know one of the ways that you have pushed back against comfort culture is through Misogis. I said that. Did I say that right? You said that right. Yes. I said it right. Okay. Um, can you explain what that is to the listeners? Because I think they would find this interesting. Yes. So, okay. So the setup is this. It's, if you think about how humans evolved in the past, we used to have to do really challenging things all the time, like big epic challenges, right? This could be from uh, moving to summering to wintering grounds. This could be from a big hunt. This could be from a tiger lurking in the bushes. And each time we would take on one of those challenges and get through it, we would learn something about ourselves. We would learn what our potential was, right? We would have these moments where we would be like, I don't think I can get, I don't think I can get over this pass. I don't think I can complete this hunt. I don't think I can do X, Y, Z. Um, but by doing it, we would go, Oh, like I'm actually way more capable than I thought. And that's like a heck of a teacher. 
Cause once you know that you go, Oh, okay. Now I have this like confidence. I have this confidence on and on and on. Uh, but today it's all of a sudden possible to survive and be like, I mean, almost thrive without ever being challenged, right? You can have a house, a decent job. You have all the water you need, all the food you need. But at the same time, by never really being challenged, you never really understand what your potential is. And if you don't know what your potential is, you're limited in what you can really accomplish in life. Yeah. So the idea of Masogi is we are going to try to recreate those ancient challenges that we used to, to face in the past. The challenges that would push us well beyond what we thought we're capable of. And in going out beyond that, we learn something about ourselves and we grow as humans. So I learned this from a guy whose name is Marcus Elliott. And he's this, um, he was a, he was educated at Harvard medical school, but he decides he's not going to be a doctor. He wants to revolutionize sports science and he sort of ends up doing it. I won't get into that thing. I mean, it's really fascinating, but I won't get into that stuff, but basically he does this thing once a year that he calls Masogi. And what he'll do is just pick a random task in nature, just make something up. Now the rules are that it has to be really hard. So he defines that really hard by saying you have a 50, 50 shot finishing, whatever it is. So for example, um, one year they carried an 85 pound boulder, five miles underneath the Santa Barbara channel It was him and a few other people. So it's like one person dives down, carries the rock under walks, the rock underwater, like 10 yards goes up. Next person goes rinse and repeat. But also simpler things like here's this mountain peak in the path, it, you know, that we see every day. Like, let's see if we can get up there in a day. Um, the really hard thing is defined by saying you should have a 50-50 shot at finishing whatever it is, like true 50-50 shot. Because today when we decide we're going to take on challenges, we tend to pick things we know we're going to finish. Yeah. You think about like marathon culture. It's like no one goes, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish the marathon. They go, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish the marathon in whatever, three hours, 30 minutes. The second rule is that you can't die. So that one's pretty simple, Fair enough. Yeah, that's <laughs> which is kind of like a silly way of saying like, don't be an idiot about this. Right? Like sure. when they did the one with the rock carry, they had a safety dive team, let people know where you're going, bring a cell phone, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, sure. but the point is that if you appropriately gauge how challenging this should be, that 50, 50 thing, you're going to hit a moment where you think you've gone past your edge. You're like, I'm done. I have to quit. There is no way I can keep doing this. I'm done. But if you just kind of put one foot in front of the other, you get another moment. And that's where you look back and go, oh, I thought my edge was back there. And yet I am past it right now. And that tells you that you've sold yourself short. And then the realization comes that you're probably selling yourself short in other areas of your life. And that's powerful because then you can take that back into any other domain in life and improve. Yes. That reminds me of um, David Goggins' 40% rule. Are you familiar with that? I've heard of it. I'm not super familiar. It's like, yeah, yeah you'll have to explain it to me. I think, I think it's, I might be butchering it, but it's like when you think you're done, you're, you've only gotten 40% basically. So hmm. when your brain's like, oh, you're done, you're, you have to quit. It's, but it's basically what you said. But when you do push past that, that's like, it's the best feeling you could ever imagine. And yeah, I 100% that believe that. Later. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th and the reason for this, I mean, if you think about it, and there's no research on this. This is just me theorizing, having thought about this a lot. Is that 
if you think about how humans evolved and these things would pop up, right? These like risky decisions we would have to make. If you were more risk averse and you were, and you doubted yourself, you were a person who didn't believe in your abilities. That would probably give you a survival advantage. Cause you're like, sure. I don't know if I'm going to do that. You know, I don't, that's a little bit yeah. too risky for the food. Like I'm going to be risk averse. You're probably going to have a higher survival rate. Now at the same time, if for whatever reason you got thrust into a challenge, being overcompetent would also provide a benefit, right? If you don't think you can do things, but then once you get put into it, you're actually way better than you think you are, you're gonna probably get out of that alive. So it's a defense mechanism, right? It's like, you don't want the people who go, yeah, hold my beer, watch this, I got this, yeah. <laughs> and then die. You want the people who goes like, go, yeah, I don't really want to do that. But when they get thrust into it, it's just like, oh, I did it. Wow. I made it out alive. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't think of it like that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. I like that. Um, talk to me about problem creep. Cause that was one part of your book that I just, I, that's the study you mentioned. And I don't know how you described it. Just like blew my mind. Oh yeah. Um, I'll walk you through the study. Cause it's actually kind of interesting. Yeah. So there's these two psychologists uh, who are researchers at Harvard and they are waiting in the line for TSA and therefore they're going to a conference. And because they're psychologists, they start, you know, thinking and talking and they notice that TSA is really good at finding problems, right? That is the job of TSA is to find problems. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, and we've probably all experienced this, right? If you've gone through it through TSA before, it's like they'll rip apart your bag because they are thinking that, you know, your water bottle is some sort of explosive contraption and yeah. they're like patting down some 98 year old woman in a freaking wheelchair who like can't yeah. see and hear. It's, you know, it's you go overboard sometimes. So these two wonder, they wonder, okay, if all of a sudden every single person abided by the rules, if Michael remembered that he had that water bottle in his bag and threw it away beforehand, and everyone else was like that, right? Everyone just abides by the rules. Would they let people just sail through? Like nothing ever really came up on the scanners, you know, they're just, would they just let people sail through? And they didn't think so. Because again, the job of TSA is to find problems. Their theory was, look, because these people are paid to find problems, they're just going to narrow the range of what they define as a problem, right? They're going to start seeing things that maybe they wouldn't have seen before. Yeah. So they decide that they're going to set up a study to figure out if this is like a feature in the human brain. So there's two different parts of the study. The first is that they have a group of people look at 800 different faces in a row. And the job of the participants, there was a bunch of participants, was to um, basically say if a face was either threatening or non-threatening. So they're looking at face after face, like imagine a slideshow, one after the other. And the participants are going, you know, non-threatening, 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 ooh, threatening, ooh, threatening, non-threatening, non-threatening, on and on. But the catch is that at, I think it was about the 200th face they started showing the participants fewer and fewer threatening faces. Now the other study, they had them do something similar. So at this time they're reading um, studies, study proposals, and they're having to deem whether the study proposal is ethical or unethical. So if you read it, you go, this one's ethical. You read it, you go, this one's unethical. But again, same deal. About midway through, they start giving them fewer and fewer unethical proposals. So you would think that 
that people would have start, started saying, yeah, fewer, threatening fewer times. They would start finding fewer unethical research proposals because th this should be black or white, right? It's like yeah. you either see a person and they're threatening, they're threatening to you, they freak you out. You either read this proposal and you're like, you know, if you think morality is black and white, then that shouldn't change. Right. What they found though, <laughs> is that the participants didn't actually say threatening any fewer times. Uh, they didn't find any fewer unethical proposals. What they did is they just redefined what they found threatening and what they found as unethical. So they started finding faces that were kind of on the, maybe on the border as threatening. Same thing with the unethical research proposals. And so what this told the researchers, and they call this, the official term for this is prevalence-induced concept change. Um, but I call it problem creep because mm -hmm. that's a much less nerdy way to say it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> is that as humans experience fewer and fewer problems, we don't actually become more satisfied and realize that we're facing fewer problems. We simply just redefine what a problem is and we lower our threshold for what we consider a problem. So this is really the science of first world problems. Yeah, right? I was going to say the first world problems. Yeah, yeah. It's like, and think about this in, so the perfect example of this, um, and I hope none of my neighbors listen to your podcast, um, is that we have this Facebook page in our HOA, because Las Vegas is all HOAs and stuff. Sure. Like my neighborhood's nice. It's not crazy. It's nice though. Um, you go on that HOA and it is like first world problem central with like people just yelling and I mean, yelling in type and screaming at each other about like, you know, your dog peed on my lawn and like, oh, your pa this package came to my house, not yours. Like it's the most silly problems ever. And it's because no one in this neighborhood really has real problems, right? But you see that you sure. extrapolate this and like, you can see why people get yeah. so worked up about like the silliest things nowadays, because we just have fewer problems. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Even, um, so we're selling a house, uh, fixer upper house we, project we did. And my husband's super meticulous. Like he is the, he's just as anal as he can be as far as like all the little things. It's done right. Like he stripped it down and rebuilt it. And um, of course the buyers wanted a inspection, which is normal. And so we get this inspection back and it's like 16 pages with color photos of all the problems the inspector found. And it's stuff like, well, there was a piece of paint peeling on the corner of this shed and just like these nitpicky things. And I was like, I was so mad because I'm like, this house was gutted. It's meticulous. And my husband's like, they're paid to find problems and they couldn't find big problems. So they had to find something. So they found the little most minute problem, but it's just, I mean, very similar to the TSA, but it's that fascinating. Is, yeah. It's fascinating. That's a wonderful, wonderful example. So one thing I talk about in the book is like, so as part of this book, I spent um, more than a month in the Arctic on this um, backcountry hunt. And that sort of is the overarching narrative of the book. So as I'm facing certain discomforts that our ancestors used to face in the Arctic, yeah. I will then sort of investigate that with different traveling in each section. But when I flew up to the Arctic, you have to take like five, six flights, right? And the first flight, <clears throat> it was one of the more awful things that happened to me because I hate flying, right? It's like planes mm -hmm. are cramped, they're hot, the coffee sucks, the food sucks. Yeah. If you want to go to the bathroom, yeah. you're in this like little thing and it's just awful. Um, <clears throat> then I spent a month in the Arctic, right? Where it's like, if I want water, I have to walk down to a stream. I have to carry it all the way back up. There's also grizzly bears by the stream. We never have enough food because you're not packing in a lot of food if you, for a month, right? If you want coffee, well, tough. 
Uh, if I want to go to the bathroom, it's like, I got to hike out on the tundra. I have to bring the rifle because of bears and animals, yeah. all these things. I mean, yeah. I'm freezing cold the entire time. Like you just literally can never get warm. So then when I fly back to Vegas, it's like, what do you think my experience of that flight was like? It was like probably the greatest, it was the greatest thing yeah, that ever better, happened. The best thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's warm. I hadn't been warm. Right. Uh, I ate tons of bags of pretzels. Coffee was right there. There was entertainment on a screen. Uh, when I needed to go to the bathroom, I didn't have to bring the rifle, not to mention it's yeah. like hot running water is coming out of a yeah. tube of steel at 30,000 feet above sea level yeah. going 600 miles an hour. Like what the hell am I complaining for before that? Right. And so I think that yeah. the lesson is that sometimes you need moments that push back at you to help you reframe what you consider a problem <laughs> and help you yes. realize that in the grand scheme of time and space, you probably have it pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what, yeah, challenges are good for that. Just to, to kind of wake you up out of the stupor. Um, we, we get cold here in Wyoming, but most of the time, you know, I'll, I'll run out and do chores and then I run back to the fire. So even, you know, when it's really nasty, I don't have to be exposed. But um, this last February, we had a film crew just coincidentally come to do a bunch of outside shooting for a documentary during our coldest days of the year, it was 30 below zero wind chill. And so they brought all their ski gear and like they had no skin exposed. They were all ready to go, but I had to look like cute to be outside doing chores. You know, they, they wanted to portray Wyoming homestead chores. And so we were out there for hours and I was like, it, I mean, it's cold 30 below, but man, nothing felt better than the fire that night. Like nothing. It was the best feeling ever. And I'm like, you know, I need to, like, this is why we push ourselves because you just don't know what you have till you don't have it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's such a great example. And it's something as simple as fire. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah. yeah. To, to, you're totally, you just totally reappreciate it. Um, it makes you, and you're probably in the moment as you're freezing, you're like, Oh my God, why am I doing this? This is terrible. Totally. <laughs> yeah. But then afterwards you probably look back and are like, yeah, I'm glad I did that. Totally. Yeah. And that moment of looking back, I think for me is what motivates me to do the hard things even just the, the homestead hard things or the physical hard things. It's that I always, I'm like, when this is done, it's going to be the best feeling ever. And I'm going to be so glad I did it. I think that's, that thought is what usually keeps me going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. After the fact. Yeah. Um, back to your Arctic trip. I remember in the book at one point you were talking about being bored because you were out there. I mean, you had moments of excitement, but then you also had a lot of moments of just not excitement. So what is the role of boredom? in creating a meaningful life and how does that play into this idea of, of comfort or pushing back against comfort yeah so in the arctic we're we're up there hunting caribou and probably your listeners will understand this but i, I don't think the average person understands that hunting can actually be very very boring right so the arctic when you're hunting caribou there you're timing it to their migration so we're basically sitting on these hills for hours and hours and hours waiting for these caribou to come through. And there are none coming through. Now, I didn't bring a cell phone, wouldn't have gotten service. I didn't bring a book, a magazine, a TV, a computer, all that kind of stuff. So all of a sudden it's like, you find yourself bored again. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, like I haven't been this bored this long since, I don't know, maybe, you know, I don't know, before I had a smartphone probably. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, to sort of cure our boredom, we had to come up with all these weird things to entertain ourselves more or less. 
We started reading all the labels on our energy bars. I did more push-ups yeah. in a day than I did in like a year. I came up with uh, my Christmas shopping list for like five years. Yep. <laughs> uh, I came up with story ideas for the, some of the magazines I wrote, write for. I wrote some of the book. Yeah. So I'm telling you that to basically tell you that boredom is this evolutionary discomfort that more or less, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, it told us whatever we were doing with our time, uh, we weren't getting a good return on our time invested anymore. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, had we been hunting, you know, 10,000 years ago, and we knew we needed food or else we were going to starve and no animals are coming through, if we wouldn't have, if we didn't get bored, we would just sit there waiting and waiting and waiting, and then we would starve to death. <laughs> Yeah. So boredom eventually, because your body goes, okay, like we're not getting anything out of this. You start to get bored and boredom would kick on telling us to go do something else. And that something else in the past was often productive. So we might go find some berries or pick some potatoes or something like that in order to not starve. So for most of time, boredom was this evolutionary discomfort that told us to go do something else. And in the past, that something else was often productive more likely to be productive. But nowadays, what do we do when we're bored? Phone. Phone. Yeah. Pull out the phone, phone, turn on the TV, go on the computer, X, Y, Z. So you look at um, the, the research on how much time Americans spend uh, on digital media nowadays, it's more than 12 hours. So when I wrote the book, the stat I have in the book is 11 hours, six minutes. Yeah. It's 12 hours now. And this book is a year old. <laughs> yeah, um, holy cow. Yeah. Anytime we feel that discomfort of boredom, we now have a really easy, effortless way to fix it. But the problem is now is that it's, I would argue in most cases, it's not really that productive. It's like people look at Instagram, yes. they go on Twitter to get angry at other people and pile yep. on mobs. They read the news, which, you know, in the grand scheme of your life, like, is the news really changing your life? Probably not, but it is probably working you up. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So, and this is bad, I argue in the book, because um, boredom can actually be really beneficial. So there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, <clears throat> one is that anytime that you are focused on the outside world, like you are on your phone, your brain is actually working really hard. So the longer your brain is working, 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 you start to get a little bit burnout. This is associated mm -hmm. with anxiety and all these things. Um, but when you're bored, you usually have to mind wander for a while before you figure out what you're going to do, right? You kind of go internally and you're looking around, thinking of weird thoughts, what to do. And then something pops up like, oh, I can do that. Well, that sort of mind wandering state is more like a rest state for your brain. It's kind of like a rest break. And it's associated, it kind of gives your brain some time down and that can help relieve stress and anxiety. Yeah. The second reason boredom is good <laughs> is that uh, they've done these really fascinating studies where they will take two groups of people and they will let one group do whatever they want in a room. They'll put them in a room be like, do whatever. They usually pull out their cell phones so they're not bored. They entertain themselves. And then they'll take another group and they will bore these people, like bore the heck out of them. Then they give them creativity tests. And the bored group always comes up with more better responses on this creativity test. And the reason for that is they think having that downtime for your brain, having that weird time to think, tends to lead you in a way that is creative. And then third of all, it's just that, look, <laughs> there's this quote that I love from William James. And he basically says, uh, 
your life, at the end of your life, your life is effectively a collection of what you were aware of. Mm. Yeah. So now we're aware of 12 hours a day on digital media. So I'm not saying that we should just totally stop using our phones and all these things. Um, but I am saying that maybe 12 hours is a lot. And, you know, in the book, I bring up the point that you hear so much about how people need, like, all the focus is on phones. And I get it. And it's because phones are always so close to us and sure. all these things. But the problem is, is that once people decide they're going to take an hour off their phone screen time, they get bored. And what do they do? They just watch another hour of Netflix. And your brain doesn't know the difference between those two. So really what you need to think about is more boredom, more removal from just all sorts of digital devices. And the way that I think about doing this in my own life is I will take a walk every single day for like 20 minutes. I usually take the dogs and I won't bring my phone with me. I'll just allow this time for my mind to sort of wander. It's also good to be in nature, which we might get into. Um, And usually I come up with some really interesting ideas and things. Now, some of the ideas I have in my head are those of an absolutely insane person. <laughs> sure. Sure. I feel like that's normal. Yeah. We all have those. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes I get some good stuff. So it's similar to the why everyone jokes about getting their good ideas in the shower, which is totally a thing. It's just because that's the one place that screens haven't inundated yet. It's not that the shower is magical necessarily. It's just, it's quiet in there. Yeah. You have this, what are you focused on? There's nothing to focus on, right? You're just going internally and your mind is kind of working through things. And, you know, when you look at learning, it it really seems to be that you need like these moments where you're really focused intensely and trying to figure things out. And then you need a moment away from it where things sort of process in the background. And then you need sort of a moment where you're just kind of letting your mind go where it needs to go. And that moment, that answer that you were looking for sort of tends to arise in those moments. Totally. Yeah. People, people ask me, you know, you're so busy, Joe, why are you still gardening? And I like the food. That's a part of it. But like a big part is just having like weeding or, or planting or just hoeing rows. Like my brain goes so hard and so fast. A lot of the time I have to have that. Otherwise I think I would just crash and burn, but it's that you just have to have that. Nothing else to think about. It's just manual labor. There's just a magic to that. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. So how we have all these ideas of, you know, pushing back against this pendulum that's swinging. What are your strategies for someone who is obviously entrenched in modern, the modern life homesteader or not? How do you encourage them to bring some of these uh, hard challenges, but good challenges back into their everyday? Yeah. So I have this, um, I have this theory and I call it uh, being a two percenter. Now, when you look at the research, only 2% of people, choose uh, short-term discomfort for a long-term reward. So we would rather avoid short, short-term short discomfort at the expense of long-term progress. So an example of this is when you look at um, people who take the stairs versus the escalator, only 2% of people will take the sca- stairs if there is also an escalator available. <laughs> this also applies to weight loss. Only about 2% of people yeah. manage to keep their weight off in the long-term. And really what the difference is, is being able to make these little decisions every day where you are embracing short-term discomfort because you know it is going to improve your life in the long run. So I think about it in terms of physical activity, figuring out ways like how can I be more physically active every single day? 
One way I talk about in the book is rucking and carrying weight. That seems to be really important for people. Um, we evolved to do it and we no longer do it anymore. It has these really unique benefits for our body. I think about yeah, it in terms of boredom. I think about it in terms of our approach to food. I think about it in terms of all these different ways that we've made the world more comfortable. Um, so on my website, I actually have this thing I just like created. It's called like, it's like a five day two percenter challenge. And it sort of walks people through these different ways to think about this. So you can check that out if you're interested. Um, but it really is just finding little wins where you're doing the slightly harder thing when you have the opportunity. Because we've set our world up. Once we realized the world was getting comfortable and we need to fight back against this, we decided like, okay, we need to do these heroic things. So now it's like people will sit at a desk for nine hours a day and then they'll go to a soul cycle class and exercise so hard that they'll nearly vomit and then they'll be mm -hmm. sedentary the rest of the day, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. A much better way that's actually more effective, also safer, would be to just figure out how can I move just more throughout the day? Like you look at the data and that actually ends up burning a lot more calories. It tends to keep people fit fitter over time. Like it's figuring out all piling up a little wins throughout the day. And that applies to just like everything you can think of. I like that. And that's, that's doable. I think the Misogis are cool, but like if you can <laughs> do one of those every once in a while, but you can do just a little bit, that's, that's a lot more accessible to the average person. Yeah. And that's really what it is, is I think that little wins throughout the day, and then every now and then you just got to throw yourself into the fire because that's going to tell you something yeah. about yourself. Absolutely. That's where the, the confidence comes. Um, how, I just totally rabbit trail. We're, we're almost to time. So this is like my last question. What, tell me, talk to me about air conditioning. Cause I know you had mentioned that in your book and I was going to go back and reread it before we talked. Are you, I, okay. Do you have air conditioning in your house? I live in Las Vegas. If I didn't, okay. uh, my I dogs like, would yeah, be very you, you, That's upset. true. Okay. But can you share, I, I just love that because I mean, obviously I live in an extreme cold climate and it generates a lot of interest whenever I talk about it publicly. People are fascinated by weather extremes and people are scared of either being too hot or too cold. So why is it important for us? I think we've touched on this a little bit, but just why is it important for us to be uncomfortable as far in terms of temperature? Sometimes? Temperature, yeah. Well, I mean, we now basically live at 72 degrees. Um, I think people spend 95% of their time indoors. And we also know that the good things happen to the human body once we take it out of that um, sort of middle ground. So when you look at heat, um, one thing that's interesting is that your body adapts pretty quick. So the first time, like I exercise in my garage it's in the summer, it's usually hundred something degrees. The first hundred degree day, it's like death, right? Yeah. But after two weeks, like I'm totally fine. Um, and we also know that a lot of interesting things happen within the body. It's like your body starts to release what are called heat shock proteins. And these are associated with all these different good things. There's all these good things, like it fights inflammation, all this sort of stuff. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum with cold, there's really interesting data about how one of the, just one of the myriad of reasons we have an obesity crisis is that people are no longer exposed to cold. So what happens in the cold is that your body has to keep itself warm. So what does your body do to keep itself warm? It has this sort of internal thermos that burns, uh, it uses this stuff called brown fat and that burns your white fat, which is like the stuff that we think of when we think of fat. So the calorie burn across the day, being out in a, on a cool day can really add up over time. And now we've sort of reduced our, our need for that. And it also seems to 
do some good things in terms of immunity and all these different things. So we've kind of shut off these two really beneficial systems by never spending much time at the extremes of temperature. And the one thing I did say in the book too about um, air conditioning is if we didn't have air conditioning, like Las Vegas wouldn't even exist as a city. Sure. Phoenix wouldn't exist, right? Like it's so fat, like it's amazing what we've been able to do. But at the same time, if we never get out of that comfort zone, we start to face problems. Yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, I do have central air in our house too, so no judgment. Yes, totally. <laughs> but, um, we, I'm still outside when it's hot, but it's, it's sure nice when you come in and you can at least yeah. get some relief. So I just thought that was fascinating. Um, well, I know you have a hard stop. So any last bits of wisdom that maybe we didn't cover before we jump off? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think you, it sounds like you have a really fascinating group who listens and I, you know, I hope they get something out of this. If they're into uh, homesteading, I would say they're doing good things for themselves and hopefully they get something out of this episode. Um, the book is called the comfort crisis. There's probably other stuff in there. They might find interesting. Like you talked about gardening. Um, I have some stuff in there about what happens when you expose yourself to germs that are in the natural environment, (laughs) like through the dirt, through being outside, um, that people might find interesting, but yeah. I really enjoyed uh, chatting. Awesome. Me too. And we can find you. I know you're on Instagram and your website is, is it michaelester.com? It's eastermichael.com. So last name first. I almost just ruined that. Okay. Eastermichael.com. And you have your five day challenge on your website. Yep. It's on the homepage. First thing you'll see. Okay. And do you have, are you working on another book? I am working on another book. So that'll be out September, 2023. And it is called the scarcity brain. It's sort of a follow-up on the comfort crisis, but at a bigger scale. So it also has a ton of traveling and interesting characters and all that kind of stuff. So if you liked the comfort crisis, you will like it. If you didn't like the comfort crisis, there's a lot of other books in the world. (laughs) There is a lot of other books, but I'm excited for it. So I will be grabbing it. Um, Well, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I I so appreciate it. And I think the audience is going to love this conversation. Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed it. Have a listen.